Well, if any of you don't know me, I'm Shane. I'm one of the pastors, and it's good to be with you guys tonight. And we do get to dig a little bit further into the book of Hebrews together this evening. And uh, more specifically, we'll be working our way through a message that I've called Complete Salvation. Complete Salvation. And the text that we'll be looking at, that we'll be focusing on, is Hebrews 7, 23 through 28, which is the final set of verses in chapter 7. Now, for those keeping track of such things, this will be our third week in chapter 7 with that blistering pace that we're moving at. Uh, But there's been a lot of really good stuff in the first 22 verses of chapter 7 so far. And so I don't want to rob us of remembering what those things are as as a way to set up some context for where we're going tonight. So let's just look quickly at where we've been over these first couple weeks in chapter 7. In our first week, uh, in verses 1 through 10, we learned a lot about uh, a certain guy. What was his name? You guys remember? Melchizedek. Yeah, good old Mel. Uh, Now, Melchizedek's the guy that the author of Hebrews has been threatening or was threatening from the very beginning of the book almost to to teach us about. Uh, He first mentioned him way back in chapter uh, 5, verse 6, where he first calls Jesus a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, And it's here in these first verses of chapter 7 that we begin to learn why Jesus being like Melchizedek mattered to the first hearers and readers of the book of Hebrews and why it should also matter to us. We saw in chapter 7 verses 1 and 2 that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness and how as king of Salem he was also king of peace, which is what king of Salem means. And we saw the obvious connection there to Jesus, both of those descriptions sounding an awful lot like the language used to describe Jesus throughout the New Testament. Then in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 7, and then in the related passage in Genesis 14, 20, which we looked at back in February, if you can remember that far back, uh, we learned that Abraham, the father of God's people, the heir of God's promises, viewed Melchizedek as greater than himself. And then we saw that play out when Melchizedek offered a blessing over Abraham and when Abraham responded to him by offering tithes to him, to Melchizedek. So that was week one in our discussions of Hebrews chapter 7. Then in week two of our discussions on Hebrews chapter 7, we talked about, who is it? Melchizedek, yeah, Melchizedek again. Uh, In 11 through 22 of chapter 7, the author of Hebrews unpacked Some additional layers of truth about him, though. This radical truth that while the Levitical priests and the law could never bring the perfection needed in order to reconcile people to God permanently, now we find out in those verses, 11 through 22, that there is one who can, namely Jesus, who came in the likeness of this Melchizedek. Then in, uh, as that chapter continued, as the chapter continued, we learned that unlike Melchizedek, who only seemed to be eternal, was this Jesus, who was and is a priest forever, something that we'll come back to a little bit later tonight. And then we also saw uh, last week that because of of the power of Jesus as one with an indestructible life, the text said, he has become for us the basis and the object of a better, more secure hope for reconciliation and relationship with God. That's a lot of good stuff. It's a lot of good stuff just in those first 22 verses of chapter 7. Now, if you're a first century Jewish Christian filled with doubts about Jesus now that he's gone off the scene, is this news about a better hope through Jesus going to sound like good news to you? Yeah. Yeah, of course. How about if you're a 21st century doubter who might believe some facts about God, but who's never really felt convicted that Jesus is all that much better than what the culture has to offer through its false saviors? Would it be good news 
to you to hear that the divine creator of the universe is offering a secure hope of the forgiveness for your sins and absolute surety that you can today draw near to God through Jesus. Would that be good news to you today? Yeah. Whether you know it or not, uh, that would be very good news uh, if that describes you. Or how about if you're a 21st century disciple of Jesus who maybe has already reoriented your whole life around increasingly following Jesus and finding maturity in him? But you know that you still struggle with remaining sin, and you know that some of your choices and actions sometimes reflect unbelief and a lack of faith. If that describes you, would it be encouraging to you to be reminded that through the power of Jesus' indestructible life, he has become for you and for me a down payment guaranteeing our stake in a new and better covenant between God and us? Would that be encouraging to you today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where last week leaves us off. And that's what sets up where we're going tonight as we close out the final verses of chapter 7 in Hebrews together. So let me read those verses for us, and then we'll pray. This is the word of our Lord from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Sound City, may we be blessed by the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you today for the opportunity to gather as your people and to hear from your word. God, we need your help today. So much of what we've been learning about in Hebrews is quite a bit foreign to us in our day and in our culture. Things like priests and covenants and oaths and tribes. But your word says of itself that it's able to make us wise unto salvation and that the scriptures are profitable for us, for teaching and correction and training in righteousness. And so my prayer for us in here tonight is that you would make your word clear to us and that you would teach us and correct us and train us to live righteously in response to what you are going to teach us tonight. I personally ask for your help as well, God, and I pray that you'd lead me by your spirit as I teach so that I might lead us well today as a church as we dig in to these verses together. And I pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, let's start with a question. Um, can you think of times in your life or maybe seasons in your life where you've been really anxious or unsure or insecure and then something happens that kind of relieves all that and gives you kind of a sense of peace and assurance? Can you think of seasons like that in your life? I know the Bible encourages us not to worry, not to be anxious about anything, but I'm pretty, pretty sure the reason that we find that encouragement uh, in the scripture is because worry and insecurity are pretty universal experiences. 
So what have those experiences been like for you? What have those times been for you? Maybe a few examples might be maybe the foster parents who, after working back and forth with various agencies, being told one thing and then having it change the very next day, who are waiting to hear good news upon bad news upon good news after years of uncertainty, and then they're finally told that they're free to adopt this child that they've been loving and caring for for years now. And that brings this sense of assurance and peace Or maybe it's the cancer patient who's been through the ringer with surgeries and chemotherapy and good test results and bad test results and year upon year, and then finally hears this news that they're in full remission that brings them some assurance and rest. Or maybe it's just the simple back and forth and the ups and downs of a a long dating relationship that finally gives way to a proposal and, and then a marriage covenant bringing assurance of real commitment and love and security. We've all had experiences like this, right? Where we go through seasons of not having a lasting answer in an important area of life, an important life issue, and then finally something happens and you're just able to exhale a little and get some peace because you've been given a trustworthy assurance that helps you put those insecurities aside and just rest in that truth that you now know. Well, that's kind of what we're gonna see in our text happening a little bit today. You'll recall uh, from prior sermons in the series that part of the context and backdrop for the book of Hebrews is that its original audience was in large part a group of Jewish converts to Christianity who after Jesus' death were beginning to doubt their faith in him and beginning to consider denying him altogether and going back to their Jewish faith, the faith of their youth, going back to putting their hope for salvation in the law and in the priest just as their forefathers had done. And so here in our passage today, in verses 23 through 28, the author of Hebrews again wants to speak to their doubts, and he means to speak to our doubts and our half-heartedness and faith as well. The author of Hebrews in today's text wants to give us real assurance concerning our faith in Jesus, and really what he wants us to see above all else tonight is that our only hope for complete salvation rests in a completely perfect priest. Our only hope for complete salvation rests in a completely perfect priest. That's the central proposition for today's message. That's the big idea that I want to make sure that we don't miss. And with that, as we pick things up in verse 23, we find the author of Hebrews busy doing that very thing, speaking to our doubts and half-hearted faith. And he begins with this. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So here we've got the somewhat rare occasion where a verse from the author of Hebrews is pretty straightforward. What a nice switch that is, huh? What a nice surprise Uh, he's baked in there for us tonight. Uh, What we have in verse 23 then is just a simple, straightforward reminder of the humanity and imperfection of the priests that had come before Jesus. The verse is saying that among the other reasons for them not holding the priesthood forever, the most obvious one is that they just keep dying. They just keep dying off. In fact, our best evidence suggests that there were 83 Aaronic high priests that died off during this part of Israel's history. Now, this isn't critical to the text today, but I thought you might find this interesting, this extra bit of information that I found about the Aaronic high priests as I was studying this week. And it comes from a Jewish historian named Josephus, who in the first century, in the early 90s or so AD, recorded what was known at the time about the history of the Aaronic priesthood in a history book that he wrote called The Antiquities of the Jews. And I'll read a little bit, a little bit of that for us. It'll be up on your screens as well. It says this, 
Accordingly, the number of all the high priests from Aaron, of whom we have spoken already as of the first of them until Phanus, who was made high priest during the war by the seditious, was 83, of whom 13 officiated as high priests in the wilderness from the days of Moses while the tabernacle was standing until the people came into Judea when King Solomon erected the temple to God. For at first they held the high priesthood till the end of their life, although afterward they had successors while they were alive. After those 13 high priests, 18 took the high priesthood at Jerusalem, one in succession to another, from the days of King Solomon until Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made an expedition against the city and burnt the temple and removed our nation into Babylon and then took Josedic, the high priest, captive. The times of these high priests were 466 years, six months, and 10 days, while the Jews were still under the regal government. And then it just keeps going on and on from there with more detail, but we'll stop there for time. Is that, is that fascinating to anyone else but me? Yeah, yeah. Um, not only does extra-biblical material, uh, texts like this, information like this, help give context to our study of the Scriptures but to me, it's always so encouraging to see ancient, non-religious texts corroborating what we find in the Bible, right? Okay, that's for free. Uh, now we'll head back to our passage, and we'll add verse 24 along with verse 23 that we already looked at into the mix, and we'll see what we can learn. We saw already the, the many human finite priests dying off and failing to endure in their priesthood in verse 23, and now, shown by contrast in verse 24, is Jesus the one divine and infinite high priest. Verse 24 saying, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So in these two verses then, we see the, the temporal or temporary uh, nature of the Aaronic high priests and their priesthood being compared to the permanent priesthood of Jesus. Now, there's a few other things here, too, that we want to make sure not to miss before we go any further. First, there's two big truth claims in verse 24. One, that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, and two, that he continues forever. But what we don't want to miss is which one of these two things, these two big ideas, grounds the other. There's a causal relationship between these two ideas, isn't there? Yeah, it's saying that Jesus holds his high priesthood permanently because he continues forever. See also, he's eternal. This is a divinity claim that the author of Hebrews is making here, and his first audience would have heard that loud and clear, and we should too, because he's saying it plainly. He's saying Jesus is God. We learn here the cause of Jesus' permanent priesthood is his eternality, which stems from his divinity. A priest that never dies is a priest that needs no successor, a priest that has no equal, and a priest that deserves our devotion and our worship. Now, before we go further, it's worth our time to dissect a couple of the words in verse 24 in more detail as well. First, that word, permanent, which is such a familiar word to us that it almost doesn't do the author's intent justice. The Greek word for permanently here is a parabatone, which means to say to us that Jesus holds his high, priestly, high priestliness in, in such an utterly pure way that he holds the priesthood unchangeably, absolutely, inviolately, meaning he holds the priesthood with such a level and degree of permanence that it cannot be violated. 
We also have this important word here, continues. And, and that one struggles to make its mark on us at first as well, because again, it's an all too familiar word. Now, the Greek of continues here in verse 24 is menin, which means to abide, to dwell, to endure, to remain, to be present. Altogether then, in uh, verse 24, we have this big idea that by comparison to these priests that just kept dying off, there's a different kind of priest that has now come. A priest with radically better credentials. A high priest who endures completely. A high priest who abides and dwells with us forever. A high priest who is present with us right now and always. A high priest who is eternal and as such a high priest who holds his priesthood forever. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm a first century Jewish Christian who's scared of what it means that Jesus doesn't seem to be around all that much anymore and who's thinking about denying Jesus and going back and putting my hope in the law, then I think the comparison just, just that we found in these two verses might just give me pause and might just help me to persevere in trusting my life and salvation to Jesus. But what about those of us in the room who are not first century Jewish Christians? I'm guessing that might be a few of us. Right, As the author of Hebrews uses these verses to teach us about the divine nature and character of Jesus, what stirs in your heart? If you'd call yourself a Christian, what comes to mind for you as we look at these deep truths about the nature and character of Jesus? What about those of you who wouldn't call yourself Christians that are in here with us tonight? First, I'm glad you're here. Come back. Second, uh, what's stirring in your heart right now as you hear these truths about Jesus? Whatever it is, pay attention to it. Pay attention to it, and don't miss what God may be working to communicate to you right now. Okay, let's keep going. But if you're following along in your own Bible, then I want to ask you a favor. I'd like to ask you to just kind of put your finger over or put a, slide your program over verse 25 for a few minutes because we're going to skip past that just for a few minutes while we're continuing to learn about the impeccable credentials of high priest Jesus. And what this is going to do for us, it's going to make it all the more amazing in just a little bit when we come back to verse 25 and unpack what Jesus is able to accomplish in light of this impeccable high priestly resume that he has. Okay, so put your finger, put your thumb over verse 25, don't cheat, um, and let's pick up again in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So here, and in the next several verses as well, what we've got is a continuation of the comparison that we were looking at previously between the Aaronic high priest who kept dying off and Jesus. Let's look a little closer. The verse starts saying, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Now, what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us here and saying it is fitting is that it's this kind of priest, the one he's about to describe, that's truly one who can fit our needs. Such a high priest truly fits our need is what he's saying. And the word such here is a modifier that points backwards in the text and also forwards in the text. And so looking backward in the text first, according to verse 24, the kind of high priest that truly fits our need is the kind that holds the priesthood permanently and the kind that is present with his people forever in an enduring way for all eternity. And then the answer continues in verse 26, where it describes this high priest who truly fits our needs as 
holy, meaning devout or pious or pleasing to God. In verse 26, this high priest who truly fits our needs is also innocent, meaning blameless, utterly moral, untouched by evil. This high priest that truly fits our needs is unstained, meaning pure and undefiled. This high priest who truly fits our need is separated from us sinners and that he is divine and completely other and separate in kind from us. And finally, this high priest that truly meets our need has been exalted above the heavens through his ascension to the position of rule and authority at the right hand of God the Father. And this exaltation language of the author of Hebrews here reminds us of what he has already said at the beginning of his letter back in Hebrews 1, where he already told us in verse 3 of that chapter that after making purification for sins, he, meaning Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So what's the author of Hebrews What he's telling us here in verse 26, when he's speaking of Jesus' exaltation above the heavens, is that through his permanent priesthood, he has made permanent purification for sin, which is another thing that we'll come back to here and spend a little more time on just in a little bit. The author of Hebrews here in just in verse 24 and 26 alone, he's pieced together quite a nice little resume for Jesus already, right? But he's not done yet. He's got more to say. And so as we move then into verse 27, we find the superiority of Jesus' priesthood being highlighted yet again, and again, building on what he's said previously. Verse 27 saying this, he, Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, we're going to be hitting on the sacrificial system and on Jesus' whole once-for-all sacrifice in chapters 9 and 10 as well in future weeks, so we're not going to unpack those ideas uh, completely today, but there are three points of comparison on display here in verse 27 that I want to make sure that we don't miss. Number one, the author of Hebrews makes another divinity claim with respect to Jesus here, doesn't he? Did you see it? He notes that the Aaronic high priests who, on the Day of Atonement each year, offered not just a sacrifice for the sins of the people, but also a second sacrifice for themselves, since they also needed to be cleansed from sin. But Jesus, on the other hand, has no need to offer any sacrifice for himself, because as one without sin, no sacrifice for your sins would be necessary. That's comparison point number one. Point number two of comparison in verse 27 is that on the one hand, the sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood had to be offered over and over again, and then even still, even though they were offered over and over again, they still remained at best imperfect and incomplete and unable to permanently atone for or grant forgiveness for the people's sin. Whereas with Jesus, who holds the priesthood permanently, he only had to make one sacrifice, and it was done, like forever. It's also really interesting to note that these three words, once for all, in verse 27, they're just one word in the original Greek, and the word is ephapax, which appears only five times in the whole New Testament, three times here in Hebrews and then twice in Paul's letters. And it's a word that carries with it a really big idea. It's this idea of a single occurrence to the exclusion of any other that results in permanence. A single occurrence to the exclusion of any other resulting in permanence. Or another way to say it would be to say something needing to happen once and then never again. That's how permanent Jesus' priesthood is. And that's how perfect his sacrifice was and is. 
And that brings us to the third important point of comparison in verse 27. The author of Hebrews doesn't only want us to see the difference in the number of sacrifices required, the one sacrifice of Jesus versus the nearly infinite uh, Levitical priest sacrifices. He doesn't want us to only see that, but he also wants us to see the incalculable difference in the nature of the sacrifices that were offered. Whereas the old covenant sacrifices typically consisted of bulls and lambs and bread and drink, what Jesus sacrificed was altogether different. St. Augustine, one of the great fathers of the early church, wrote about the nature of Jesus once and never again sacrifice around 400 AD in a text called On the Holy Trinity, where he really beautifully lays out the truth that the author of Hebrews has revealed to us here in verse 27. St. Augustine writes this, Who then is so righteous and holy a priest as the only Son of God, who had no need to purge his own sins by sacrifice, neither original sins nor those which are added by human life. And what could be so fitly chosen for this sacrifice as mortal flesh? And what so clean for cleansing the faults of mortal men as the flesh born in and from the womb of a virgin without any infection of carnality? And what could be so acceptably offered and taken as the flesh of our sacrifice made to be the very body of our priest? What Augustine eloquently and strikingly shares with us here is what is sometimes called the self-offering of Christ, which is this reality that Jesus is both sacrifice and priest, both victor and victim, which is a horrific truth to be sure, but it's the only truth that can offer us a sure hope of the forgiveness of our sins, that can offer us true reconciliation with God, and actually quite a bit more, as we're going to see before we end here tonight. Then in verse 28, he brings this grand show, the author of Hebrews brings this grand showing of Jesus' credentials back full circle. He picks up elements from all the way back in verse 18 and then all the way on up through verse 24 as he continues contrasting the great divide between Jesus and the Aaronic high priest, saying this, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So first he picks up on what we covered last week in verses 18 and 19, which says, For on the one hand, a former command is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. So these verses, 18 and 19, they kind of become the backdrop, the precursor for what the author of Hebrews is trying to teach us here in verse 28. In other words, because the law is weak and useless comparatively, and because it can make nothing perfect, the priests that it produces are weak compared to what Jesus now offers as well. Then in the second half of verse 28, the author of Hebrews adds one more credential to Jesus' resume, and it's the unchangeable promise of God the Father, which is perhaps the most compelling reason yet for placing our hope in the person and work of this perfect high priest. What we're talking about is the oath of God the Father concerning Jesus in verse 28, which is the same oath spoken of back in verse 20 of chapter 7, where it says, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. 
So you're a doubting first century Jewish Christian, or maybe you're just a uh, doubting or half-hearted 21st century Christian. Um, How is what the author of Hebrews is saying here supposed to offer us some kind of assurance that is going to help us feel better about placing our faith in Jesus? What's that all mean? Well, what the author of Hebrews is doing here in verse 20 and in verse 28, with a little help from the quote that he's pulled forward from Psalm 110 verse 4, what he's doing with all that is he's saying, okay, so you guys don't believe me yet? You still need more proof? Well, how about a letter of reference from God himself recorded by King David where he swears an unbreakable oath making Jesus, God's only son, a perfect high priest forevermore? That's what, he's, uh, that's what we're being reminded of here in verse 28. This promise, God, God's oath, it, it's, like the, um, it's like the cherry on top of all the other arguments being offered by the author of Hebrews here. It's his trump card offered to anyone who would still have doubts. So the author of Hebrews has built his case. He's written a truly impeccable resume for Jesus, listing out all his credentials. And here it is again, just to make sure we've got it. In verse 23 and 24, Jesus is shown to be superior to all other priests because while they keep dying, he's eternal and he remains forever, and therefore he possesses a, possesses a non-transferable, never-ceasing priesthood. That's 23 and 24. In verse 26, Jesus is shown to perfectly fit, to be perfectly fit for our high priestly needs, since he's a high priest who is holy and innocent and unstained and pure and utterly distinct from sinners and exalted highly above the heavens, above all else, to the position of authority and rule at the right hand of God the Father. In verse 27, we're reminded that he has no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins like those other priests did because he's without sin. We saw also that he only needed to make one single and perfect sacrifice in order to fully accomplish his priestly work. And we saw that the nature of his sacrifice as a self-sacrifice set him apart uniquely amongst all priests as both victim and victor as both priest and sacrifice all at once. And then in verse 28, as we just saw, God the Father notarizes a letter of reference for these truths about Jesus, drawing from the Old Testament from Psalm 110 to swear an irrevocable oath by his own name in order to make it crystal clear that Jesus' high priesthood is indeed a forever priesthood and that it could indeed be trusted by anyone who would have doubts. Sound City, that's the resume of Jesus And if you're doubting Jesus today, or if you're half-hearted, or if you're lukewarm concerning him, or if you've become dull of hearing, which is what the author of Hebrews called it back in chapter 5, then I hope and pray that our our, our short look at the resume of uh, high priest Jesus tonight would shake something loose in your soul, and that it would draw you into appropriate awe and reverence for who this high priest Jesus is. Is God stirring something in you today? as we look full on at who this high priest really is, what's he stirring in you? Maybe I can ask it another way. Let me ask a different question. Uh, Why do you and I need a high priest today? Why do you and I need a priest today? Well, let me remind you of the central proposition, the big idea that we started with, because I think it just may help us answer that question What I'm proposing to you tonight is that you need a priest, that I need a priest, because our only hope for complete salvation rests in a completely perfect priest. 
Our only hope for complete salvation rests in a completely perfect priest. And in order to unpack that and understand why that's true, now we get to go back to verse 25, which we passed over earlier. So picking it up again there in verse 25, the author of Hebrews begins saying, consequently, meaning in light of that whole ginormous list of those high priestly credentials that we've just been working through, uh, consequently, because of all those credentials, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So why do you and I need a priest today? Well, because the right high priest is able to save to the uttermost, which is to say, high priest Jesus is able to save absolutely and completely those who would draw near to God through him. Why do you and I need a priest today? Because the right high priest will truly fit our need as sinners because he can offer a sacrifice that the Levitical priest couldn't, a self-sacrifice of one who is innocent, unstained, and pure, the self-sacrifice of one of whom it was said in Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation or an acceptable uh, sacrificial offering for the sins of the people. Why do we need a high priest today? Well, here's the ugly truth about human sin, yours and mine that doesn't often get talked much about in the church these days. Human sin, our sins, are such a great offense to God that, has, that it has always required the taking of life and the shedding of blood in order to atone for and make restitution for sin. If you want a verse to look up later and to dig into that more, you can look at Leviticus 17, verse 11. Leviticus 17, verse 11. And while the blood sacrifices of the Old Testament priestly system could only atone for sin partially and temporarily, God the Father made Jesus a high priest forever, and he did so with an oath and in concert with Jesus once for all blood sacrifice of himself for the propitiation of the sins of his people. But let's not miss this. What people are we talking about here? what people are being talked about here. Verse 25 says, High Priest Jesus is able to utterly, completely, and absolutely save who? Everyone? Who's getting saved here? Who's, whose sins are being atoned for through the blood sacrifice of High Priest Jesus here? Is the author of Hebrews a universalist, saying that all people get saved? No. Does the author of Hebrews appear to be a pluralist, saying that all roads lead to forgiveness, all roads lead to God, as long as you believe in something? No. Do the Holy Scriptures here in our text in Hebrews say that as long as you're a pretty good person who's done more good things than bad things, then Jesus' blood covers your sins? No. What we've got here in verse 25, then, is something more similar to the truth revealed in Acts 4.12, where Luke records Peter saying to another group of doubters, and there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven but Jesus given among men by which we must be saved. According to verse 25, high priest Jesus, perfect once and never again blood sacrifice, 
saves completely, atones for absolutely, restores into relationship with God permanently only one group of people. Those who draw near to God through him. Those who draw near to God through Jesus. But what does that mean? Well, for starters, in Hebrews 5, verse 9, the author of Hebrews has already said of Jesus that, that after being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to who? To all who obey him. Now, taking it in its right context, this isn't suggesting some kind of works-based salvation, as that verse might first appear. Rather, it's rightly reminding us that those who draw near to God in Christ are those who, as a general pattern of their lives, have submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus because of their faith in him. Said another way, this group who draws near to God through Jesus is those who, in recognition of their own sin, have turned to God and said, I'm a sinner, and I need a savior who can restore my broken relationship with God by atoning for my sins and then give me a new life, a life of worship submitted to the lordship of Jesus for God's glory and for my good. Maybe you're thinking, hey, if I'm honest, that doesn't describe me today. Well, the good news is is that even if that doesn't describe you when you walked in here tonight, it can describe you before you leave. If you're feeling like that might be what High Priest Jesus has you here for tonight, then don't leave without grabbing one of us at the end of the service and letting us pray with you and help you get right with High Priest Jesus, who is willing and able to save you completely and to the uttermost. But we're not through just yet. There's one more thing that verse 25 has to teach us that's true of God's people who draw near to him through Jesus, and here it is. Verse 25 tells us that for those who draw near to God through Jesus, there is never a single moment ever when he's not interceding for you. While it's difficult for us to know exactly what this means, we know for sure that it at least means this, that Jesus' capacity for effectively acting on our behalf is unlimited, never-ending, We've got a couple other clues about what this means to us from other passages of Scripture. We can look at Hebrews 2.18, which says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So his eternal intercession for us that comes about as a consequence of his permanent priesthood brings us constant, ever-present aid and help. Is that an encouragement to anyone tonight? We've got another clue in Romans 8, 33 and 34, where the Apostle Paul boldly declares, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So his ongoing and permanent interceding for us also becomes our true source of hope for lasting salvation and eternity with God. Is that good news to anyone tonight? We've got another clue in verses 24 and 25 of the book of Jude, where there's a short hymn of praise that's offered up as the closing of that letter. And here, too, we see clearly 
the unbelievable intercessory gifts that have been bestowed upon those of us who would draw near to God through high priest Jesus. Jude says this, Not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so through his intercessory high priestly work on our behalf is what that's saying, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So in his never-ceasing intercession for us, he also works to keep us from stumbling. And he guarantees he'll finish the work of presenting us blameless before the presence of God the Father when it comes time for that. And all of this, if we'll only draw near to God through him, our high priest. Sound City, understanding that a blood sacrifice was required in order to blot out our sins ought to change the way that we think about sin and draw us into worship of our high priest, Jesus, who willingly became our ransom. Sound City, knowing that Jesus' permanent priesthood means for us that he is able to save us completely and irrevocably, ought to fill us with joy and peace that overflows into all areas of our life. Sound City, seeing that our high priest, Jesus, who lives forever, will never cease from his interceding work on our behalf, ought to lead us into lives of worship and thanksgiving and boldness and hope. So, do we need a priest today? Yeah, you bet we do. You bet we do. Church, our only hope for complete salvation rests in a completely perfect priest. Our only hope for complete salvation rests in a completely perfect priest. And isn't it good news that we have such a fitting and perfect high priest available to us today? Yes, and amen. Well, with that, um, we're going to turn now to a time of responding to what we've learned about high priest Jesus tonight. And we'll respond in a couple different ways. First, we'll respond through giving. And so if our financial stewards would come... Uh, we'll begin our response through giving. Now, just by way of instruction, for those of you who might be guests, uh, if you are guests, we don't expect you uh, to give your welcome to, but you're under no obligation to do so. But for the rest of us, we want to be a people who uh, are, are not counted as those who worship our money, but those who worship with the finances that God has entrusted to us. And so that's why we give to the work that God is doing here at Sound City. I also want to, uh, as a way of response, offer up some questions and prayer points drawn out of the message for us to reflect on in our community groups and uh, in personal reflection. And I'll read those for us. They'll be on your screens as well. They're also in your handout tonight. Number one, which of the many descriptions given in this week's text concerning the nature and character of Jesus is most striking to you and why? Number two, why does it matter that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, save completely? And how does this shape your understanding of your own relationship with God? Number three, who is it specifically that the author of Hebrews declares Jesus is able to save completely? What does it mean to draw near to God through Jesus and explain why you would or would not count yourself among this group? Number four, what does it mean that Jesus lives to make intercession for God's people? And what does that mean to you personally? 
Then a couple points for prayer as well. Number one, pray that all who walk through the doors of Sound City Bible Church would be numbered among those who draw near to God through Jesus in a saving way. Number two, you're going to be praying that Jesus' forever presence with us and his ongoing intercession for us would change and grow the way we live out our faith each day. So that's some questions and prayer points for you for this week. Another way we'll respond tonight is through communion. And this is a time where uh, all of us who would call ourselves Christians, maybe even some of those who just put your faith in Christ tonight, are welcome to receive the Lord's Supper. And this is a memorial meal to us, the bread reminding us of Jesus' body being broken for us, and the wine or juice reminding us of his blood being shed for us. Pretty appropriate way for us to respond in light of the message today, huh? And then as we respond through communion, we'll also respond through song and in worship to Jesus, and we'll do that right after we pray. So if you'd stand with me, I'll pray for us, and then we'll respond in these other ways as well. Father God, that in your love for us, you would, uh, by divine fiat, by an, by an oath, cause your son Jesus to become both our high priest and perfect sacrifice so that we could be reconciled to you, so that we could be saved to the uttermost, so that we could spend eternity with you. It's really all just beyond our comprehension. Lord Jesus, tonight we praise you for the price you paid to rescue us from sin as our great high priest. Holy Spirit, we worship you tonight for your never-ceasing intercessory work in concert with Jesus on our behalf. And God, I pray for myself and for all within the sound of my voice tonight that you would save us to the uttermost and that we would all leave here tonight changed and living differently as a result. And I pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.